I mean, if you're if you're a first time home buyer that wants to buy a house, the Fed has broke your ability to buy a house because the cost of financing it with the 40 percent rise in home prices over the past two years and the sharp rise in mortgage rates, it's now 60 percent more expensive on a month to month basis. Right now, renting the Fed has broken your ability, at least right now, to buy a house. The average price of a car is about the same level as the median income in this country. Call it around 50 grand. Well, the higher cost of funding that has now broken for many the ability to buy a new car uh, and a used car while prices are coming down, they're still up dramatically. Uh, getting back to if you're a, a business that's been borrowing floating rate, that you know, the Fed is, has, has broken your ability to finance yourself for many businesses if you had too much debt. So it's um, now maybe it's accumulate, it's going to be an accumulation of these things, you know, over the next year or more that sort of coalesces around you know, a panic of some sort in the markets. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with money manager Peter Bookvar. If you haven't yet watched part one of our discussion with Peter, in which he explains why he predicts the Fed will keep interest rates substantially higher for longer, than the market is currently pricing in, head over to our channel at youtube.com slash Wealthian and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment themes we discuss in this video. Peter also generously shares how he's currently allocating capital for the turbulent year he sees ahead, so be sure to stick around for that. Okay, let's get started watching part two of our interview with Peter Bookvar. There's a lot of gravity um, pulling things to the downside uh, in terms of growth, but there are some cross currents. You talked about the role that China is going to play here. That's going to be, you know, a, a very kind of bullish dynamic in, in this soup of, um, you know, slowing economic growth worldwide. Um, uh, I'm I'm presuming that that means you're going to have to be, um, you know, it, it's been so easy the past decade, right? Where you, where all the, the rising tide and everywhere rose all boats, so you could pretty much just throw a dart and ride it. Um, I think now you're probably going to have to be a lot more intentional and specific about where you allocate capital. But don't let me put words in your mouth. Um, what is your? How, how do you think the markets are going to perform next year? And and how are you recommending people allocate for it? So geographically, for the last ten plus years, the U.S. market is just dominated everything international, whether it was developed Europe or um, Japan or the emerging markets. Uh, the, the, the U.S. Uh, slice of that market cap global pie um, rose to a record, became tremendous. And I think that is now going to mean revert. And I'm sure we could have said this last year, the year before, but the catalysts this year are that China reopening the end of tech stock dominance in the US for at least this cycle being you know the, the largest market cap names. And that if the dollar rally of 2022, that January through October took the DXY, the Euro and Yen heavy DXY, 17% in 10 months, then gave some of that back in November, December, that dollar rally is over uh, because the Fed is almost on raising interest rates. and the dollar rally was only an interest rate differential thing. Well, that's another reason why I believe international stock markets will outperform. So, you know, we're long um, Singapore and Vietnam 
and Japan, uh, India, and also along some things in China, but also some peripheral China plays, as I mentioned, the Macau casino stocks, some Asian life insurance companies, and some other travel-related uh, names that, uh, that focus on the Asian region. And then even Europe, um, if you do a lot of business with China, which Germany does, I mean, you, you, you ask the world, raise your hand if China is your biggest customer, and, and Germany is going to be uh, right there raising its hand. So there's the possibility, and, and with the ECB raising interest rates more notably, that maybe the euro rallies, and you have European stocks that outperform U.S. stocks, which we've seen uh, year to date. Maybe the first sort of week of trading was uh, maybe a dress rehearsal for the outperformance of international markets relative to the U.S. Now, we're still long U.S. stocks. Uh, we're just not long to the extent a lot of the, 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 the big cap tech stocks and still a lot of the uh, overvalued tech stocks. There is other cheap stuff out there to the point where the value potential, the outperforming growth is not just a six month or 12 month thing. It can be a multi-year thing. Uh, and then also swinging back to the potential weakness in the dollar, also the China reopening. We like the energy stocks, both oil and gas. Uh, we like uranium. We like precious metals, which were long and also liking local currency emerging market bonds. Uh, on a play against the dollar, uh, mostly shorter duration. And uh, I think there's good yield and potentially a currency pickup there. Okay. Um, thank you for being so specific. That's awesome. Um, uh, it sounds like a healthy amount of your thesis in some of these assets is the dollar weakening. And I didn't get a chance to ask you about that in our macro discussion. Um, you, you mentioned a reason you think it's going to weaken relative basis to other currencies, largely because the Fed is approaching the end of its hiking cycle here. Um, any other context to add around that? Just because it seems like such an important factor in your, your calculus here for allocation. Well, I think it's important to try to figure out you know, what was the catalyst for that dollar strength last year? Was it, was it the, the U S is the best and we're better than everybody else. And Europe is in, in, in war and why on the euro? And, um, but so I think it was important last year to really sort of pick apart the dollar's action against a variety of currencies to, to really fill out a good view of, of, of why the dollar did so well last year. Because the dollar didn't do so well last year against the Mexican peso. It didn't do so well last year against the Brazilian real because those central banks were pretty aggressive in raising interest rates. The dollar against the Canadian dollar, it's been in a trading range for years now. Well, you have Bank of Canada still raising interest rates, doing QT, and also the commodity trade that has helped uh, the, the Canadian dollar. The US dollar against the Australian dollar, yeah, it was more of in a range. I mean, the dollar rally last year was really against the euro, the yen, and the pound, when you really break it down. When talking of, of note, we know why it rallied against the yen, because the Bank of Japan was the last central bank in the world to shift policy. You know, rallied against the euro, obviously, because uh, it wasn't until the back half of the year that the ECB finally raised interest rates, and the war obviously created its own problems. And um, and then the energy issue with the pound. So that told me that the dollar rally against those currencies was mostly just an interest rate differential thing, and not much else. So once the Fed was almost done raising interest rates, I felt more comfortable in believing that the dollar rally has ended. Okay. Um, uh, 
let me put it this way, I'm sure a lot of those countries are going to hope you're right, um, <laughs> given how painful the rise in the dollar was for a lot of different regions around the world. Um, okay, so um, now I, I, I just want to take your outlook and map it to your earlier comment um, that, look, bear market's not over until folks don't want to touch stocks anymore, right? So um, uh, you've told us where you're long because obviously um, there's still opportunity even in a, a, a overall bear market. Um, but it sounds like from what we talked about earlier that you expect um, you know, the general indices to continue to, to decline. I imagine in some ways that's almost mathematics at this point um, if you expect the dominant tech companies um, to lose their pole position um, if less money goes into them, they 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 have become such a huge driver of the major indices because they've they've gotten so huge in market cap um, that if capital is is now not going to them in the future, that mathematically just sort of has to drive pull the indices down. Um, so, anyways, long story short, um, help us understand in your outlook where you think uh, the bear market's going to still continue to play out next uh, this year. Well, I think you said it. I'm, I'm most bearish on the NASDAQ and the tech-heavy S&P 500. I think that um, there are other parts of the market, U.S. market, that are much cheaper. Uh, and as I mentioned, certainly overseas, uh, there are plenty of uh, really attractive markets if you're willing to hold on for the next couple of years. It's really just that tech-heavy NASDAQ and S&P 500 that I think is going to be the laggard in, in the coming years. Okay. Um, all right. Look, uh, from a uh, volatility standpoint, um, you know, 2022 was kind of an interesting year. It was certainly a more volatile year than previous ones, but volatility didn't go just bonkers the way that a lot of people thought it would. What do you see looking into 2023 from a volatility standpoint? Well, it's interesting. When you look at volatility spikes in the past, it obviously was COVID shutdowns. Then it was you know, late 08, early 09, when you thought the banking sector was imploding, mm -hmm. um, you know, those were, yeah, uh, uh, those were major events. I don't necessarily see as, a, you know, I stated that I, I think there's just going to be a lot of different things coming together rather than a, a major event. But that means that volatility, I mean, the VIX has been above 20 for a while now. You know, when you, when you think about the years leading into COVID, with QE and zero recall, like eleven, yeah. <laughs> the the VIX was like between ten and fifteen yeah. for years. Now it's between twenty and thirty. So we all we are already in a higher volatility environment than we were pre-COVID. Now, if you if you stretch this back to you know the eighties, the VIX has averaged about twenty. But relative to where we were post financial crisis up until COVID and where we are now, it's still a higher vol environment. And what can get vol to spike? You know, it'll be cracks in the market. It'll be panics in the in the in the stock market, in a bond market, as opposed to you know necessarily an economic panic. Okay, and and um, uh, you've sort of talked about these death by a thousand cuts. Um, uh, what about the potential for something to break? Right. So a lot of people who who are expecting the Fed to pivot, um, they believe that that something key is going to break because of the extremity and the, the unprecedented pace of rate hikes that the Fed has engaged in over the past year. 
um, and, uh, and and that something's just going to force the Fed's hand to come rescue something. Um, you know, uh, presumably that would be obviously a catalyst for volatility, but at a higher level, um, you know, do you, how worried are you about something like that? Like a real systemic uh, snapping that, that forces the, you know, not only a Fed pivot, but just like, you know, forces all the concerns that come along with, I don't want to say it's going to be like a layman moment, but something, you know, on that order of magnitude that just all of a sudden gets everybody really worried about the system continuing to run. Yeah, well, if you, you know, sort of um, game plan it in different scenarios, it's obviously China invading Taiwan, it's Putin using a nuclear weapon. Uh, but in terms of, of, of an economic breakage, I, I think it's going to be more nuanced. I mean, if you're, if you're a first-time homebuyer that wants to buy a house, the Fed has broke your ability to buy a house because the cost of financing it with the 40% rise in home prices over the past two years and the sharp rise in mortgage rates, it's now 60% more expensive on a month-to-month -month basis. Right. You're now renting. The Fed has broken your ability, at least right now, to buy a house. The average price of a car is about the same level as the median income in this country. Call it around 50 grand. Well, the higher cost of funding that has now broken, for many, the ability to buy a new car. Uh, and a used car, while prices are coming down, they're still up dramatically. Uh, getting back to if you're a, a business that's been borrowing floating rate, the, you know, the Fed is, has, has broken your ability to finance yourself for many businesses if you had too much debt. So it's um, now maybe it's, it's going to be an accumulation of these things you know, over the next year or more that sort of coalesces around you know, a panic of some sort in the markets. That's for sure. But at least right now, I'm not looking at that. I'm looking at how each of these different parts of the economy are sort of absorbing this shock therapy rise in the cost of capital in a very short period of time. All right. Well, we're going to have to wind it up there for, uh, for time's sake. Uh, Peter, always a fascinating discussion with you. Do you have any just sort of parting words of advice? You know, this is a, a wealth building channel. Most of the people here that are watching are um, self-educating to, you know, learn the rules of the game that they're going to have to navigate here. And most of them just sort of don't want to become collateral damage uh, to some of the more negative aspects that we've talked about here. So do you have any just parting bits of advice for them? I cannot emphasize enough that the best time to be buying things is in a bear market. The best time to be buying stocks is when they're on sale. And bear markets provide tremendous opportunities, but you have to have cash set aside to take advantage of those opportunities. So rather than being scared about what we've talked about, look at it as an impending opportunity. Great. And I just want to underscore that word impending. Um, I, I, from everything you've said, I don't believe you believe we're at the stage yet where those great valuations are, are there. Well, maybe in some places, yes. Uh, some places of, of, of the, the world's markets, you know, they've had their own bear market. You know, Asian markets have done nothing for 10 years. They've been like this. They've done nothing. So I think that there's definitely opportunities that probably have seen the worst. Maybe even in some U.S. tech stocks that are down 75%, maybe they've seen the worst. Um, but just be focused on valuation analysis, focus on balance sheets. And if you got a time horizon, um, you're going to be okay. All right. Um, well, Peter, uh, for folks that have really enjoyed this discussion with you and would like to follow you and learn more about you and your work, where should they go? 
Well, if they want to learn about our wealth management services, they can go to our website, bleakly.com. And if they're interested in reading my daily missives, they can go to bookreport.com, B-O-O-C-K, report.com. And I write daily on uh, macro market um, uh, and, and anything else that's relevant. All right, great. And Peter, you're pretty active on Twitter as well, correct? Yes, at P Bookvar, B-O-O-C-K-V-A-R. Okay, great. And Peter, when we edit this, um, I will put up overlays with the URLs to your Twitter handle and to your company and, and everything you just mentioned there so folks will know exactly where to go. Um, well, folks, look, um, definitely go check out Peter and his organization. Um, everything that he talked about did a wonderful job of underscoring our continued message on this program, which is, uh, you know, for the vast majority of, of people out there, um, we highly recommend that you work under the guidance of a professional financial advisor that takes into consideration all the macro trends and risks that, that, that Peter mentioned here. Um, if you'd like to uh, schedule a free consultation with the ones that Wealthion endorses, just go fill out the short form at Wealthion.com. doesn't cost you anything, no commitment to work with them. It's just a public service they offer to help people make as informed a decision about how they want to position themselves for this upcoming year ahead of us. Um, Peter, it's just been wonderful. Thank you so much, folks. If you'd like to see Peter come back on the channel again soon and see other great guests like him, please support us by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Peter, I hope we can have you back on again soon. For sure. Thanks, Adam. Well, all right. Well, now is the time of the program where we bring in the lead partners from New Harbor Financial. I'm joined, as usual, by Mike Preston and John Lodra, and we're going to make sense of uh, both of their reactions to what Peter said, but also to what the markets uh, have been up to since last week. Um, Mike, uh, I know you just got off a of red eye, so I'm going to give you a slight break here and let John start. Um, John, uh, Another great discussion with Peter, super smart guy, really glad to have him in the stable these days. Um, what were your key takeaways from the conversation? Yeah, hi, Adam, and hello, everybody. Uh, I really enjoyed Peter's interview with you. I thought it was fabulous, uh, really uh, to the point, um, really supported by data and and kind of perspective and, and, and certainly some contrary points, contrarian points, perhaps relative to many of his peers as, as a CIO, uh, chief economist. Um, you know, three big areas that I'd like to maybe just call out. I'm sure we'll dive into these uh, more deeply as we go along here. But uh, regarding the economy, he is like most most everybody observing a, a general slowdown. Um, look at the uh, ISM numbers from last week. Both categories were, were weaker. Uh, there's definitely a slowdown in housing. And look at auto prices. There's classic signs of a major slowdown. Employment picture is a little bit more murky, uh, and, that, and that's kind of a lag, you know, lagging type thing. Um, but he calls out the most interesting part of the economy being China, and and here here's kind of one area where I think he's a little contrarian. I think in a very very wisely so. You know, a lot of people are focusing on the big picture uh, demise and structural issues of the the Chinese command and control economy, uh, but he he really put it shone a light on the the dramatic impact he thinks the the removal of the zero COVID policy and the, the reopening, so to speak, uh, will have on the Chinese economy, but also especially the, the Asian area, neighboring economies, and, and of course, other global economies that are heavily uh, integrated with China and trade and things like that. Uh, just one data point he threw out there, he, he, he I think, said something like, uh, you know, during the, the, the lockdown or COVID zero or, or recently, there was something like 14 flights a day from China to I believe he said Thailand. Maybe it was Taiwan, but I think it was Thailand. 
And he, he contrasted that with 400 flights per day to that same destination prior to COVID. So that was just one data point as to the magnitude of kind of reopening pent up demand that he uh, thinks will, will play out. And, and uh, of course, there's ramifications there in terms of, of things like uh, global and emerging markets investments, which we happen to be big fans of. And we'll get into his views on that later, which are very similar to ours. Um, regarding kind of the bigger picture, and we can't get through any of these conversations th these days without talking about the Fed and, you know, the related uh, uh, quandary of inflation and, and, and recessionary type, type discussions. Um, you know, basically he, he sees in a word, he said, I think the, the situation is going to look like a death by a thousand cuts. He right. doesn't, uh, doesn't by any means uh, come across as the guy, the kind of person in the camp that thinks the the Fed is going to pivot and start reducing at the first sign of weakness. Uh, quite contrarily, he 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 points to the uh, you know the credibility uh, issue with the Fed and, and not needing not wanting to to uh, destroy whatever regain credibility they've tried to to get with with their hard line on interest rates. Points to the '70s, like we did in a, in a talk with you the other day, Adam. Uh, there were three separate um, big spikes of inflation in the '70s, and each one was uh, progressively worse. And that was a result of the central bank getting too easy, too quick on fighting inflation with interest rate policy. So he 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 thinks it's uh, we're likely to see a, a higher for longer, both in inflation and interest rate policy in the short term. So he doesn't doesn't come across at all as suggesting a, a, a pivot. Um, and then in terms of markets, um, he, he characterized uh, his take on the stock market as we've kind of more or less checked the box on the, the first phase of a classic bear market, where the high flyers, the real speculative high flyers, uh, repriced dramatically. And he, you know, just threw out, a, you know, we've gone from a 30 times to a 10 times sales on, on some of these companies. We agree many of those high flyers have, have, you know, come look at Tesla, look at Amazon, you know, some of those household names. Uh, and he thinks we're at the very start of uh, phase two, which is where the repricing happens in the broader stock market, you know, repricing on expectations of revised down earnings, higher inflation, uh, you know, squeezing uh, corporate margins, things like that. And, and never mind the third phase of classic bear market where uh, investors throw in the towel and just give up. So we, we like him, agree we're, we're in the early stages of, of, a, of a likely uh, bear market that's still going to play out. Um, the upshot of that, you know, he, he threw out some stats and I'll just throw this out. Um, he, he thinks we're just on repricings of PEs on the stock market alone, maybe going from 17 to 12 or 13, never minding uh, earnings reductions. So that's that's a 25, 30% further drop in the market right there without any, you know, really ma major earnings uh, declines. I'll just stop with one final, I think his closing quote or one of them was, there's, there's no better time to buy stocks than in a bear market. And uh, that, the you know, rather than fearing a bear market, uh, one should view it as impending opportunity. And that's exactly the way we see it, uh, having cash ready and, and liquid to, to kind of uh, buy into those sales that will ultimately come in, in various asset classes. So I'll pause there. There's a lot to throw out there, but plenty to talk about here with our, our conversation. Yeah, no, those, those were great highlights. And uh, yeah, I, I was smiling when he made the point about, um, you know, not fearing the bear market, because if you've got the cat dry capital in your position to move, um, you know, you can get some just, you know, his, you know historically great valuations to buy into. Um, the quote unquote kind of blood in the streets moment that, that we'll sometimes talk about. 
Um, and I was sort of trying to explain this the other day to somebody, and uh, I was using an analogy or the analogy of the Powell Doctrine. Um, so, you know, um, Colin Powell, uh, the former uh, uh, head of the, uh, what is it, the, the chief joints of staff, um, I might have murdered that, but um, he, um, uh, you know, basically was famous for coming up with this military doctrine of you don't go in until you have just lined up the odds overwhelmingly in your favor, right? Uh, and, and then then, and only then do you move in, right? And um, I know you guys at New Harbor, you, uh, one of the big reasons why I have had such a, a long, you know, decades plus long relationship with you guys and felt very comfortable, you know, associating my brand with yours is that you guys really prioritize um, risk mitigation at the top of your your portfolio strategy and given all the macro issues that we've talked about and of course you know peter just enumerated a ton of them in this discussion um you know they're they're highly likely or, or the probability let me say of there being a bear market capitulation here where people just throw the baby out with the bathwater, walk away and discuss uh, from the markets and leave truly great valuations on the table for people who are well positioned to take advantage of here uh, is pretty looks pretty good right now. And so I know you guys have been, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so feel free to correct me on this. But I think it's a big part of your strategy, right? Is like just to to try to not to lose money as as the bear market unfolds, so that like the Powell doctrine you can deploy it when the odds are unfairly in your advantage. Um, I see you nodding as I'm saying all this, John. Yeah, I think that's a very apt analogy, Adam. And I, I, I'm ashamed to say I can't remember all the titles that uh, General Powell. <laughs> uh, I think he, he might have been Secretary of Defense as well at one point. But uh, shame on me for not not knowing that as well. Yeah, I, I was he Secretary of State at one point. In yeah, time that's too? what it was. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Uh, um, no, really, really uh, apt analogy. You know, you, it's all about probabilities. We we are the first to say that investing and calling these shots is anything but a perfect science but you know having data and tilting probabilities one way or the other is is really most of the battle in our opinion yeah and and just to murder our military analogies here um one of the things again i think i've really liked about your guys's approach is um wars are made up of a bunch of battles uh, and what you want to make sure you're not doing is taking too much risk in trying to win any one battle um, and really just trying to make sure at the end of the day, you're positioned to win the war, right? Um, and so, you know, again, that's where I think your guys' sort of mitigation approach has come in. And obviously your track record in 2022 really proves that, right? You know, major indices down somewhere between 20 to 30%, uh, and you guys were only down a couple single digits percent, right? Um, and yeah, you probably would have loved to have won another battle or two, so you could have eked out a positive gain for the year. But I'll tell you, being down, you know, two-ish percent versus 25 percent, that's a massive win, right? You're you're preserving all that, your, your troops to win the final war. All right, I'll get off the military analogy. I think I've beaten that thing to death. Um, all right, Mike, uh, coming to you, uh, anything else you want to add to uh, John's observations there? No, I think John had a really good recap. I think I'd just say a few more words about the dry powder comment. Absolutely the right thing to do in, in, in really in, in any type of investing is to buy properly, buy the proper valuation, because your future return is really 100% tied to the 
the price you pay for something. So that's what we've been battling through, though, psychologically as investors, as money managers for most of the last 20 years. It's been a very controlled market, and the market has not been able to clear. Even at the low in 2009, March 9th, 2009, the market only came back to a cyclically adjusted P.E. ratio of about 15, which is a long-term average. It did not get undervalued. It got to fairly, fairly valued. Now, some people may may argue with the type of valuation figures that we're using, but we really haven't had a real market clearing event at all in 20 years. So we've shifted to this somewhat permanently high plateau, and we'll see whether it's a permanently high plateau, but it's been a real um, kind of contrived gun to the head type market where you just had to basically bite your tongue and, and, and buy it. So that's what we've been battling with here, but we're very, very, uh, we're very uh, rigid with our rules. We have about 42% or so in short-term treasuries and cash right now. Thankfully, over the last six to eight months, we're able to get a return on that dry powder, yielding almost 4% on short-term treasury bills. But absolutely, you have to be patient. You have to be psychologically able to sit for long periods of time, feeling uncomfortable. And we do believe the the area that we're looking at you know, down to maybe 3,200 to 3,500 is an area that we would call the end of the first phase of the bear market. Will we get some short-term real worry and capitulation? We're nowhere near that now. Uh, we're, we're presently on a bounce uh, in the market. I think the last swing high was December 13th. We've retraced maybe 55 or 60% of that decline. We're looking for a rollover relatively soon and then some sort of acceleration downwards where we'll be looking for opportunities, hedged hedged entries and opportunities into the market. We're presently only about 12% net exposed to stocks right now with a big piece of cash. So overall, that's our tactical objective, our tactical outlook. Hardest thing in the world, though, is to sit and wait. At the end of the day, we sit here at this permanently high plateau waiting for opportunities that the market just hasn't really given anyone with a value mindset uh, yet. Very, very small windows of opportunity that we have taken in the past, and we're looking uh, we're looking to take some more opportunity pretty soon. All right. And that's one of the big uh, values that a professional advisor offers is to, you know, some of the times the hardest thing to do is just to be patient, right? And and to to, to be the counsel that just, you know, is protecting somebody from all of their, uh, you know, instincts and, and gut feelings that are telling them, oh, you know, market's going up, I got to get again before the rally really takes off or whatever, right? You know, you're just telling them, look, there's a plan, there's a logic, just hold the course. I know that's one of the hardest part about your jobs. And I know that's why you guys said I have to be part therapist in the process here too. Um, all right, Micah, I'm going to ask you just a couple quick questions because I'm getting up to a bigger question here. Um, so you said, you know, it, we're roughly speaking here. Um, Kind of S and P three thousand thirty two hundred. You think is sort of the where your target would be for sort of finishing phase one of this bear market, which implies that by the time we get to sort of phase three, the markets are, are materially lower than that, right? So you're you're expecting nobody has a crystal ball, but you're kind of anticipating an S and P price in the twos or who knows maybe in the ones by the time this is over. It's it's a wild guess, Adam, but yeah, you know, all I've got to go on is history and present valuations and data, which are extreme even now. I would suggest um phase three or the capitulation phase of this bear market could end around 1800 or so. 
below okay. 2000, that would be pretty typical about a two thirds loss off the top, you know, so phase one could bottom around 3,200, then go sideways or bounce for a while. And then we roll over again towards the COVID lows in um, phase two, and then a capitulation or phase three, there's no telling where that could be, but it would be somewhere in the teens. I have to tell you, though, given the current set of data, an S&P 500 somewhere in the teens, somewhere around 16 or 1800, only predicts expected returns of around 8 to 10 percent over the following 10 years. Right now, we have expected returns of, of somewhere in the in less than zero, minus two, minus three, something like that. Unless something else changes, that's what we're looking at. All right. And I'm going to I'm going to find the, the scatter chart of John Hussman's that we often show when you talk about that, John, uh, Mike, and I'll put it up here um, just so people can see that according to his latest calculations, the next decade or so is projected to still have negative returns at, at current valuations, which is the point you're making. Um, all right. So here's where I'm going with this. Um, so, you know, you're saying, look, there's potential if this bear market plays out the way we've seen previously in history that the S&P could get cut in half, you know, from here. Right. Um, you said we haven't had a real market clearing event for over 20 years, right? Um, now, Peter uh, mentioned that um, there is going to be a constructive um, growth impact from China reopening this year, but but it may not be big enough to kind of overwhelm all the other um, all, all the other gravity that's pulling economic growth down worldwide. And um, where I'm going with this, Mike, is uh, so. Jerome Powell, who spoke again yesterday, um, he is still saying, look, I'm going to 5%, guys, and I'm going to hold it there. And Peter said, yeah, I think Powell's going to keep rates high for longer than the market expects right now. Um, but then uh, just uh, yesterday, we had uh, Jamie Dimon come out and said, you know, I, I think there's a 50% chance that the Fed may have to go higher than 5%, like up to 6%. And then last week, we had St. Louis uh, CEO, St. Louis Fed CEO, uh, James Bullard said, you know, it's not inconceivable. The Fed funds rate might have to go up to 7%. <laughs> so my question to you is, could the Fed's, Fed funds rate go up to 5 or 6 or 7? And if they hold it there for a period of time, do you see any way that we could avoid that kind of market clearing event? In other words, could the global economy and markets sustain that high of an interest rate for very long without really breaking? No way. I don't think so. Five, six, seven percent on the short end. You know, the short, <laughs> interest rates are the are the lifeblood of the economy. Everything depends upon it. Um, the our entire global economy depends upon credit functioning on credit. Without it, it starts to seize up. With higher rates, things start to slow down. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, if I could give a compliment to the Fed, which is hard for me to do, to be honest, uh, if they were to actually hold the course and do that, I think they would be doing a, a good thing for the global economy. And, and even if that meant some type of economic crash, I think they know in their heart that we have to go through some kind of painful process. You don't get away with the types of extremes we've had for the last 20 years without some kind of price. I know that that's the fairy tale that most want to believe in, uh, but I don't think that's going to happen. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that they could do that. I, I doubt that they've got the resolve to do that if the market were to fall apart. I mean, remember, they made the market equal the economy. It never used to be that way. They used to be separate. Now they basically are the same thing because that's what the Fed did. And um, 
So if, if the it would if they go ahead and hold rates and raise them to that level, I think the market would crash. I think the economy would crash, and that's what would cause them to pivot. Everyone talks about the pivot. That's not going to happen until much lower levels. They know that they need to do this. They know inflation is a potential problem, or I should say a persistent present and potential future worse problem. So um, I just don't see them having the guts to do that after some type of reset. Okay. Um, so, you know, uh, we'll see, but it sounds like, you know, you're, you're a little bit of the same mindset I am, Mike, which is just, if the Fed funds rate went up to those numbers, I mean, even for a little bit, but certainly if they tried to hold it there for a while, we're just going to see a ton of collateral damage uh, across both the economy and the financial markets. So who knows, we may get that market clearing event, you know, that you were talking about, Mike. Um, you know, it's funny, I've, I've had a lot of people um, commenting recently in some of the uh, comments we've made on these videos and some stuff that I've been sharing on Twitter about, you know, where the, the Fed funds rate is going. And, you know, some of the older viewers are saying, hey, you know, yeah, sure, Bullard's talking about a 7% Fed funds rate, but that's nothing compared to what, you know, I had to deal with back in the 80s. And that's maybe more of a healthy rate. And uh, it's really not that bad as somebody who lived through it. And I just want to underscore that it's a totally different world now than it was the last time that um, interest rates were that high. Um, and it's because of the debt, right? It's, it's the, the size of, of the national debt um, and the uh, leverage ratios of, of homes. Uh, sorry, U.S. households uh, and their finances, um, that it's just, it's a totally different world. Uh, we we just can't sustain uh, the service payments uh, for, for, the, for the massively more, you know, larger piles of debt that we have now uh, than we than we had back in the, the 70s and 80s. So, um, uh, you know, it's, it, I, I understand the comment that's being made, but I, I don't think it's an apples to apples comparison here. And, and of course, that's one of the things we've railed about for, I've known you guys now for getting close to 15 years, you know, we've been railing about for, for that whole time is that the debt situation's just gotten out of control. And rather than reining it in or dealing with it, we just keep kicking the can down the road, which allows that pile to keep expanding. Um, so anyways, I just want to reinforce the fact here that these Fed funds rates at the levels that we were talking about here, five to seven percent, they they really are like kryptonite to the, the modern global um, overly leveraged economy. Um, all right, John, I want to come to you here because we have a um, we're recording this on, on Wednesday, January 11th, I believe. Um, and uh, tomorrow on Thursday, uh, we're going to get the latest CPI number for December. Um, and I just want to share some um, analysis that JP, Mar uh, JP Morgan has put out. It basically says, okay, look, here's what we think the market's going to do based upon the CPI print. Um, and we don't know that number right now because it's coming out tomorrow. Um, they think that if the CPI prints above 6.6%, um, that that is going to disappoint the markets and send the S&P down somewhere between 25 to 3%. Um, they give that a probability of only 15%. So they don't think that's the more likely outcome. Um, they think if it prints between 6.4% and 6.6%, uh, that the markets will rise one and a half to 2%. They think that's the majority likely outcome. They put a two-thirds probability on that. And then they think if it prints below 6.4%, um, this will cause the markets to rally even higher. 
probably somewhere between three to three and a quarter in the S&P. They give that a probability of 20%. So, you know, world's watching. We're going to see what's happened tomorrow. I'm just curious, uh, do you have a, a strong sense one way or the other whether CPI is going to uh, disappoint or uh, or perhaps come in even lower than folks are imagining right now? In all humility, humility Adam, I, I really don't. Um there's so much that goes into this and there's you know it's, it's no mystery or no uh secret that many folks look at the inflation reports with a whole lot of skepticism to begin with as they can be used in different ways by uh policymakers to communicate certain uh themes or or trends that that they want to have out in it because you know i think every everybody that lives at home probably knows in their bones that inflation feels higher than what is being re reported when you factor right. in we don't have to talk about egg prices which are their own kind of meme <laughs> right now but um no so i, I frankly i we don't really have a a, a a very scientific answer to that question adam i wish, wish we did but i think the bigger point is that whatever near-term reaction the day of re reaction or whatever we think it's just circus uh there, there's so much more that we think will drive uh stock prices over the next six, 12, 18 months than, than what happens tomorrow. Um, and, and I don't think a single print, even if it comes in softer than expected, is going to materially change any Fed policy or anything like that. Um, again, I think they're deathly afraid of repeating the, the mistakes of uh, the 70s. And we're still at record high valuations. I mean, they, they, they want the job market to start the crack. They want risk assets to reprice lower, and and they've only done so modestly. Even though it feels like a whole lot of pain last year, we're, we're just very, very much have only scratched the surface of the nosebleed valuations. I want to comment quickly about um, you know Mike shared some some views or thoughts about the the return prospects over say the next decade, and you know he talked about maybe negative two, negative three percent, and there's some very reliable valuation metrics that statistically, and John Hussman does great work in this area, that statistically point to that not being a crazy idea and actually quite a quite a feasible and probably even likely one. But whether whether it's negative 2% or, or, or even like positive 2 or 3%, that there's a range, right, that's likely going to happen. Um, and, and if you go back and study valuation correlations with, with future returns, the longer the horizon, the more predictable or reliable those relationships are. In other words, it's it's one is much more robustly able to forecast returns over the say the next decade, uh, based upon valuation levels than say over the next year. Um, so what the main message we want to get across is that uh, it's virtually impossible, if history's any guide, to think about anything like a a five, seven, eight, ten per ten percent or more return over the next decade in stocks, just given where we're starting the valuations at. And you know, other folks out there, GMO just came out with their uh, latest seven-year asset forecast today, uh, which is as of December thirty-first. They're projecting slightly negative uh, real returns in in U.S. stocks, both large and small, over the next seven years. Throw in an inflation rate, and, and they assume inflation is coming down. To more reasonable levels, maybe not zero, but you know, not so. If you're throwing a, a inflation rate of three percent, let's call it. So maybe they're talking about a three percent uh, nominal. I'm just using that as a as a, 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 a hypothetical. Um, but you also have some mainstream firms coming. St Stiefel Nicholas just came out with a, uh, a an outlook that says uh, they think the stock, the S and P, nominally is going nowhere in a decade. They said it's likely to be in 2031, right where it ended 2021 at. 
um, and 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 the kind of big picture view they see is they see earnings probably doubling uh, for the for the market over the next decade, but PE ratio is being cut in half. So right. long trip to nowhere. So so it's not crazy at all. It's actually quite likely and, and prudent to think about a decade from these current levels that uh, goes nowhere in the stock market. But usually going nowhere happens in a really painful and interesting way, usually in the form of major declines, followed by face ripping rallies and a very tactical approach we think is going to be needed, starting with uh, a very defensive one right here and now. So you can be tactically opportunistic, like like Peter suggests, you know, buying into a bear market. Yeah, great point. And, and another way to describe a tactical position, right, is, is an actively managed one. And we've we've had this conversation many times recently on this channel, right, which is, you know, you're saying, look, <clears throat> we might be flat from the starting point to the ending point, you know, let's say a decade later, right? But the path to get there, you know, is going to be filled like this. And what you want to do is is dramatically try to reduce your odds of, of losing during the drawdowns so that you have the ability to deploy, you know, prudently to catch the upsides, right? So that 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 while the market may be flat for the decade, an actively managed portfolio that's able to do what I just said can actually grow over that period of time. And you're nodding as I'm saying this. All right, well, look, as we wrap up here, um, uh, Peter made a point, I just wanted to harp on here for a second, where he said the Fed has broken the home and the car buyer, the, the homeowner and the car buyer, the home buyer and the car buyer. And, you know, what I think he meant by that was, you know, by distorting prices so much, by distorting the cost of capital um, and, and putting so much uh, stimulus into the system, we basically got to this point where homes and cars just became ex increasingly unaffordable to the masses, right? Um, and, and now it's destroying them because we have the worst of both, both scenarios right now, where we still have pretty elevated prices, you know, they're just beginning to cool, but they're much closer to their all-time highs still. Um, but the cost of capital, the cost of borrowing has gone up materially, right? So it's a horrible time right now to be buying a home or a car because you're paying the high price and you're taking on a really expensive loan to do that. Now, we can make the argument um, that Mike might have been making earlier that, well, maybe this is the process of the Fed kind of trying to right some of its, its wrongs. And by destroying demand, it's going to bring prices back down to a much more sane and affordable level. Um, and, and I think that that is in what, what the process of going on. Um, but uh, there's two interviews I just want to flag for folks here. One that we recently did with housing analyst Nick Jurley. If you want to understand what's going on in the housing market, and a lot is going on right now, um, and to try to understand the magnitude of the correction that that market uh, is likely to undertake over the next couple of years, but particularly in, in this year, 2023, um, go watch the video that I recorded a couple of weeks ago with Nick. I'll put up a link to it right here. Secondly, I did an interview um, not that long ago with a guy named Charlie Chesbra, who is the senior economist for Cox Automotive. Uh, and it was a good interview. Charlie, I think, gave a you know an honest assessment from where he sees it. Um, but he, you know, sort of works for the establishment. And um, before I had reached out to Charlie, I had reached out to a couple of voices. Uh, from guys that are actually like working on the front lines of of auto dealerships and auto sales um, who are telling a much more different story. You know, they're t telling stories of, um, you know, dramatic uh, fall off in sales because prices have gotten too expensive. They're they're telling stories of of fast ballooning defaults on auto loans because uh, auto loans were given out to kind of anybody with a pulse, the way that subprime home loans were back in the in, in the 2007 era, and um, 
it, you know, just basically setting ourselves up for for kind of Armageddon or, or maybe we'll say Carmageddon um, in, in the autos market. Um, and so uh, one of those guys, a guy named Lucky Lopez, who was, I, I think a lot of people took note of an interview that he did with Daniel DiMartino Booth about two months back. Um, I'd been talking with Lucky to get him on the program for months and he just couldn't get him given the schedule. Anyways, he just called me back the other day and we've set up a, a time to record later this week. So there'll be an interview with Lucky uh, coming out on this channel next week. I just wanted to flag that for folks. Keep your eyes out for it because that should be a fascinating interview about you know where car prices are headed. Um, and certainly for people that are you know potentially in the market for a car, um, we'll have all the details there. But my sense is Lucky would say, if you can afford to wait, wait, because patience is really going to reward you, you know, in the form of lower prices on better values on cars later this year. And I mention all that because it's not too dissimilar, John, from what you were just saying, you know, about stocks, right? If you if you take the, the tactical approach, patience can really reward you if you wait for those downdrafts to happen before deploying. Um, all right. Um, so as we wrap up here, Mike, I'll let you give the last word. I know that gold has been hanging in still. I know you guys have been watching that closely. Um, anything to say as we wrap this up? Um, you know, gold is still hanging in there. Uh, it's it's broken out above the level that we thought was pretty critical, 1820 level. It's still sitting in there at right around 1880. So it looks good. Look, the S&P is up about 3%, almost 3% year to date. And I know a lot of people uh, are, are thinking that's a positive thing, uh, as goes January, so goes the rest of the year, is the old saying. I don't think you should rely on any old sayings from Wall Street. I don't think there's any predictability to any of it. It's not surprising that we have a little bit of a bounce here. Um, here we are at January 11th, almost halfway through January already, amazingly. Um, but you know, this could be erased in, in one day. We have one down day in the SP, down two or three percent. And all of a sudden we roll over and head lower. So I don't really think we're getting much information yet from the market year to date. The volatility index or VIX is sitting right around 20. It's really low. It's just really mundane, not much fear in the market. And, and here we hover at what I think are very technically uh, dangerous uh, positions. We had that swing high that I talked about back on December 13th which to me looks like a pretty critical level. So let's see what happens the rest of this week. But volatility is pretty low. I, you know, I don't think negativity is as is, is, is high. I, I hear a lot of other people talk about, well, there's a lot of negativity in the market. So that's a contrarian signal that we're going to go higher. It's certainly positive, but I, I don't see it. A lot of these short-term contrarian signals have become very whippy and unreliable in recent years. I think the important thing is to look at longer term indicators like valuations a and and b take a look at what investors are actually doing with with their money we're still at something like 64 65 percent equities if you look at the the polls on what investment uh, what investors are actually doing they really haven't been selling equities there's no fear in that indicator and there hasn't been throughout any of the corrections we've seen in the last couple of years so Again, nobody knows what's going to happen short term, but technically we're at a precarious place, and um, we'll continue to be we'll continue to be patient and wait for our opportunity. And miners, um, and, and one more comment: with gold <laughs> at around eighteen eighty, miners are starting to technically look great. If you look at the chart of GDX, it's pushing thirty two. If it breaks out of there, um, it could move to the mid high thirties pretty quickly. So we'll see. 
All right. Well, we'll have to wrap it up there, guys. Um, thanks so much for yet another great week. Um, folks, uh, if you're watching, um, I'm just going to reiterate the point I make week after week here. And John and Mike have done a great job of making it for me here in this conversation. Um, very tricky time in the markets, a lot of uncertainty out there, likely a lot of coming volatility, as these guys think, maybe, you know, potentially a lot more of it to the downside. So uh, you want to make sure that you're being guided through all this by a professional financial advisor who understands these trends. If you've got one who's good at doing that, fantastic. Stick with them. If you don't, or if you'd like a second opinion by one who does, maybe even John and Mike and their team there at New Harbor, just schedule a free consultation with the financial advisors that are endorsed by Wealthion. To do that, just go fill out the short form at Wealthion.com. Totally free, doesn't cost you anything, no commitment to work with them. Uh, these are just, uh, it's just a public service these advisors offer to try to help as many people as possible position themselves prudently before all the action that might be happening this year takes place. Um, and if you enjoyed uh, this conversation with Peter, would like to see Peter back on the channel and other great minds like him, please do us a favor and support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. John and Mike, thanks again for yet another great week. No matter what the markets do from here, we'll be on this week, uh, this channel next week, making sense of it for folks. Uh, guys, thanks so much. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Thanks again, Adam. See you soon. Thanks, Adam. And thanks for everybody to watch. And uh, we'll see you next week. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth. And because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right. With all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching. Thank you.